Visionary, a show exploring how nuclear powers your world. I'm Mary Carpenter. And I'm Jordan Houghton. Let's jump in. Hey, Jordan, and hello, Visionaries. Thanks for joining us today. Jordan, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. I am really excited about our episode today. We're talking to John Marshall, who is the founder and CEO of Potential Energy Coalition, which is a nonprofit that has done some really exciting research into marketing around the conversation of climate change. And it's fascinating to me to look at it from a marketing and branding angle when you're talking about clean energy. Yeah, marketing and branding is so important. And I am the perfect example of people that they're trying to reach because I am such a sucker for good advertising, good branding. I mean, I will drink Coke till the day I die because of those polar bears. I mean, there's just something about ads that really draw me in. And if I feel kind of like a connection to them, I will be brand loyal forever. It's really interesting drawing parallels because, yes, to your point, if you're I don't know when the last time we saw the Coke polar bears. It's been a while, sadly. Perhaps we have some younger listeners who don't quite know what we're talking about. But if you saw the Coke polar bears, they pull at your heartstrings. You have like a little soft spot for them. And I just think it's fascinating to look at clean energy through the lens of corporate branding, which is how John has spent his career working with some of the world's biggest brands. Yeah, he talks about his experience marketing for big brands and how he sees nuclear being able to use kind of the same tactics that these big brands are using that are creating lifelong followers and people who really support the brands. And that's exactly what nuclear needs right now as we're going through this transition, creating new technologies, really exciting stuff uh, that we want to be able to share with the public and we need to be smart about it. And there's it's a really good opportunity to learn from these big brands that have been really successful in that space. So John, actually, his company, Potential Energy, just put out a report earlier this year with Third Way, Replanet, and ClearPath called The World Wants New Nuclear. It's a really interesting report. Would recommend everyone check it out if you have some time. But they reached out to people in eight countries on three continents. They polled people in the USA, France, Germany, Poland, Sweden, UK, Japan, and South Korea. So they had a good mix of countries that are very supportive of nuclear, countries that are not supportive of nuclear, countries that are kind of going through a sea change of support right now. So it was a good test sample. And they found some really interesting stuff. One of the interesting tidbits that I took out of the report is that 85% of people are open and receptive to nuclear energy, which is obviously a huge majority of people. And I think that there's a misconception among people who are supportive of nuclear that they're maybe the only ones in their social groups and their work groups and their communities. They still feel perhaps like a minority. And I think it's interesting that this shows that is very much not the case, that most people are open to and supportive of nuclear as one of our best clean energy options. And I hope that that gives people some confidence in standing up and showing their support, knowing that they do have a large uh, community around them that agrees. 
there is strong support for advanced nuclear in every country they tested uh, with, an, with an average of five supporters for every opponent. They also found that environmental group members are strong supporters of advanced nuclear and that young people are particularly receptive with little opposition anywhere. So it's, it's a good place to start for nuclear, but I think there's always more we can do. I love that you brought up young people from from the report because John got into this because his son actually urged him to do it and said climate change is critical. It's it's devastating. It's going to get worse and we need your help. Yeah, I think even in the interview, he says his son like locked him in the house was like, Dad, you need to do something about this. So young people have a voice and it's really cool to see how older generations are listening to what young people are saying and really trying to make a difference. So love that story. Really excited to jump into the interview with John today. Our guest today is John Marshall, the founder and CEO of Potential Energy Coalition, a nonprofit, nonpartisan coalition that brings together America's leading creative, analytic, and media agencies to shift the conversation on climate change. Potential Energy aims to develop new narratives that help people better understand the issue, engage audiences on a personal level, and build demand for a better, cleaner, and more prosperous world. John, thanks so much for joining Mary and I on Visionary today. We're really excited to chat with you. I'm wondering if you could just start by telling us a little bit about your background and your career journey and how you ended up here. I'm, I'm delighted to spend time with you all. Yeah, I was, um, I was a, a corporate guy, um, was a management consultant and then a marketing consultant for big companies for 30 years. You know, helped big brands like Starbucks and Walmart and Bank of America and Comcast, the companies like that with their, uh, with their messaging and brand positioning and communication. So that was, that was my life, helping big companies with her communications. And then one morning, my 17-year-old uh, confronted me and actually locked me in the house for two days and said, Dad, you have all these marketing skills. Why are you not doing something about the thing that actually matters, which is climate change and clean energy? And so he, so he literally did lock me in the house for a couple of days and said, I want you to call all your marketing friends and see if you could fix the terrible communications on climate. So that was the moment that seeded the beginning of potential energy. And so we're basically a bunch of commercial professional marketers who want to work on climate and clean energy and try and bring the best practices of what large companies do and really strong marketers do into um, you know, the climate change world. And we, so we formed a, a firm, basically. I think of it as Earth's marketing agency that is, an, is a nonprofit, but it's singularly nonpartisan. And we're trying, to get, we're trying to increase the capability of the sector to connect on the core issues. So that's our founding story. We run a series of campaigns to try and basically do, do education I love that this came from your son. Where where did his passion for this come from? Yeah, well, you know, he t- he took a course, a university course called the it's called the Climate Energy Challenge, and in that course, it was with Dan Schrag, as a, one of the leading climate change uh, professors. And in the course, you have to, you actually have to try and you know you you have to build a spreadsheet where you actually solve the problem, and it's really hard. And so he, he was like he was coming home, wringing his hands, thinking, "Wow, there are so many transitions that actually need to happen here with our energy system. People don't really know how how big and complicated a challenge it is." And so that was kind of an eye opener for him. So he, he was bringing back that news every day from school, and then uh, decided to pull me into the problem. 
That's amazing. He's actually trying to create solutions, which is awesome to see the youth of America doing. It's interesting. Like I think mo- many people who get involved later in their careers, as I've had, have had a kick in the butt from younger people. So I think that's that's true in a lot of cases, and also true. And you know, we'll we'll talk about the things we've learned about nuclear, but I think true as well. You know, forcing forcing us to to, to look at the problem in different uh, in different lights. And good for them because they're inheriting the earth from <laughs> from the older generation. So I I I love seeing this younger generation so engaged. I'm curious through your work with Potential Energy Coalition, how you found the average person views climate change? I think it is changing. I mean, sadly, it's changing because every year that goes by, we have more extreme weather moments. And so the salience has been going up in America. It is an issue that people find overwhelming and complicated. The climate sector has done a really poor job communicating. So most people don't really know what causes it. They think the solution is a whole series of things. Like one of the top, like among the top three solutions for your average citizen are recycling and plastics. People realize it's a growing problem, they see it, but they haven't quite connected the dots between clean energy and climate as much as they might. But I think that's, that's changing. It's getting less politicized over time and people are caring more about it, but we still don't have a population that's really got their head fully around it. 50% of people think nuclear or know that nuclear is clean energy as an example. 50. So there's, there's this whole bunch of educational opportunities. And that's why we exist, to try and help identify those, po- those places in society where good marketing and good educational materials can actually really help advance the cause. So what exactly does Potential Energy Coalition do to make that happen? We do two things. We do a tremendous amount of research and analytics to understand what are the frames and words and approaches we can use to better communicate both climate and clean energy. Our observation is that no one wakes up in the morning and says, what a great day for some decarbonization. And so the the climate sector has done a pretty darn poor job with their decarbonization and their net zeros and their all that stuff. And so we're we're trying to build a fact base to help guide, you know, whether you're in the industry or whether you're in the climate movement or whether you're a political leader or a local leader to help guide people to connect better on the issue. And then we run campaigns. We run marketing campaigns to educate citizens so that they uh, understand that the nature of the energy transition and they're more supportive of that. We're sitting on a big body of research, and this is where the, the nuclear thing came in because we got very interested in that. We served and measured about 3 billion ads, and so we serve a whole bunch of advertisements to people, and then we watch and, and observe what happens so we can learn you know, what resonates with people and what they don't connect with. And we've run probably about 150 focus groups to date on a whole series of issues including wind and solar and climate change and nuclear and, you know, just a whole bunch of facets of the clean energy transition. We've tested probably over 500 messages to date to understand, like, what works for people, what causes backlash, what's political, what's not political. How do you get a human being to, to care more about the issue? I want to talk about the research that you've done in a moment, but I'm wondering if you've looked into why you think the communication has been poor or insufficient to date in this space? I do think climate and clean energy attracts some very smart people, and, they're, and they have some very technical and conceptual answers to very simple questions. And so we, and then they write books saying the hundred things you need to do to solve climate change when, you know, you could just say it in one phrase, let's reduce carbon pollution. And so I, I think we haven't had a lot of marketers in the energy and clean energy fields and what happens is these concepts get get birthed out of academia and out of policy spheres, 
and they're just confusing, like net zero. I mean, I'm all in favor of net zero as a goal, but as a communications concept, it's pretty bad because A, no one knows what it means and nobody wants to go to zero. We want to go to a good place, not a place where there's nothing. So we just haven't had a lot of what I would say customer-driven thinking. And so when I'm working in my corporate life with brands, you know, we start with segmentation and we start with understanding people's needs. We understand their values and their identities, the things that they care about. And then we say, how can we relate to them in terms of what matters in their lives? You know, as I said, nobody wakes up in the morning saying it's a great day for decarbonization. It's just, we just haven't connected very well. And I think the nuclear industry is guilty of that. I was at a conference a few weeks ago and somebody got up on stage and proudly announced the exciting moment when the plant was going to go critical. And I'm like, well, that's not the word you're to yes, use. Yes, critical. We talk <laughs> I, about that all the time. The word critical. It sounds scary and bad, not not a celebratory thing, which it which it is. A maxim I really love from my, from my, my friend Mike Maslansky, who's a super good communications consultant, is uh, it's not what you say, it's what they hear. And I, I don't think most communicators use that maxim. So we're trying to do that in uh, in climate and clean energy. You mentioned people thinking about recycling as a way to solve climate change. Do you, do you think that's because it was something that was more easily communicated and tangible for people? I think, well, there's been a frame on on environmentalism for 40 years, which is the re reduce, reuse, recycle frame. That's been a dominant frame. And it's actually not a bad frame for some particular problems. It's not a bad frame for polluting a stream or, you know, cleaning up litter and so forth. The, the, that overall mental model, we've got to, there are a bunch of ecological things that we should be doing. It's not a terribly good frame for climate change where we need to upgrade the world's energy systems. What's interesting in our research is most people really agree with the statement, we need more energy and we need more growth and we need to solve the climate crisis in a way that accommodates growth as opposed to one that sacrifices our standard of living. And so people haven't necessarily thought about the ecological frames from the point of view of how do you, how do you have both? Like how do you have growth and, and jobs and prosperity as well as lower pollution? So I think we're inheriting, especially on nuclear, so we're inheriting some frameworks that were around in the 1970s. It's basically the old, older people who, are, who, are, who have got these, these kind of 1970s frames in their head about what's good and what's not good, whereas younger people, they tend to want to embrace new technologies as a way to solve problems, which is not necessarily some of the standard ecological frames. But we know PEC is heavily focused on climate change, um, and you recently collaborated with ClearPath, RePlanet, and Third Way on the World Wants Nuclear Report. Is nuclear something that PEC has been interested in in the past? We initially were asked by a couple of folks to look into a, a fairly specific question, which was, there are a series of retiring coal plants in America. How do the people who are living in the community feel, like, feel about the option of replacing their, their source of energy you know, with advanced nuclear? And so we did it. We said, well, that sounds interesting. That sounds important. And then we've just seen the pure carbon <laughs> impact of this. So we thought, well, we should look into this. We're being asked to do it. So we did a study in coal communities in the U.S., uh, a smaller study than the, than the bigger one that we've just published, to understand how do local communities feel about the possibility of having small modular reactors in the community as a, you know, as a way to keep the tax base up, keep the jobs going, and, and remain an energy town. And it was very, I wasn't expecting the result that we saw, which was really four to one support versus opposition for advanced nuclear in all of these coal communities. And that's like in my, like down the road, right? Like uh, support was dramatically, I thought, I always thought, oh, it's a, it's a, like some people are opposed to it, some people are worried about it, some people are against it. But the data came back 
And the other thing about the data that got me really interested in is the the predictor of support for nuclear in these coal communities was incredibly correlated with d degree of knowledge, like no, like I've never seen before. And so very, very low support with low knowledge, extremely high support with high knowledge, a linear, a really strong linear relationship. And so we then got kind of interested in it. And like any good marketer wants to get their mitts on nuclear because it's like, oh, it's a brand. Like, what does that brand mean? It exists in people's minds. And you always think, oh, I could just rebrand it. That would be a great idea. Like, we should call it something else. And so I thought this is exciting. So after having done that work, we realized... There have been some smaller studies that have been done on, on nuclear, but no one had really done a large-scale brand study about how does the world perceive it. What does the word nuclear mean to people? What's the support? What's the opposition? What are the attributes? What are the feelings it evokes? The imagery that we use, the cooling towers or the, the electrons going around the atom, like what does that do when you see that? And that's what we do when we do brand work. We, that's what we do for a Coke or any big brand is really understand what does the brand mean. So we then decided and partner ship with these other organizations. Let's go do what I think is the world's largest brand study on, on nuclear with a particular emphasis on new technologies to understand how the world sees it. So we did an eight country study, which has a big sample size. It's around 17,000 people in eight countries throughout the world with a big sample in the US. So we, we know a ton about the US citizen, but we, we looked into France and Germany and Japan, Poland, South Korea, Sweden, Britain, and the US. And that's the, the essence of this report that we decided to entitle The World Wants New Nuclear, because I think if there was one conclusion, it would be, well, the world is really supportive of nuclear technologies, much more so than you would perceive to be the case. You said that people were more supportive the more knowledge they had. Did you look at why they were supportive? Was it jobs? Was it clean energy? Was it safe energy? Did the studies show why they were supportive of nuclear? All three of those, I think, are the case. I'm asserting, based on the data, that nuclear energy is not perceived as clean energy. So clean was a big part of it. The second thing that we saw in that study, but also in the subsequent study, was that when you talk about safety and waste, you dispel concerns about safety and waste. You don't create concerns about safety and waste. And that's long been, I think, a debate in the nuclear sector. But we, we have pretty high confidence that when you, when you talk in very factual, plain-spoken terms about the, uh, the risks of safety and waste, you get more support, not less. And I, there are some folks who say, well, you're activating a concern in people's minds, but that's not the case from the data. When you put waste in context and when you put all the record in context, then you, you increase support for nuclear. I think both of those things, cleanliness and safety and waste, have been under-communicated. Do you think that's because people already come with a negative perception of those things? So when you talk about it, you're clearing up a preconception? Maybe like Mr. Burns and The Simpsons and so forth, where those things get exaggerated, but they're not that hard to dispel, for, like from purely looking at the analytics. And I say this respectfully to the nuclear community listening, but the nuclear community hasn't done a great job with marketing. Like the cooling tower as a concept is a big scary thing that people think pollution is coming out of. They don't see it as an integrated part of a, of a plant that's uh, submitting steam. And so the imagery and the associations are large and maybe scary. And even the words that we use, like a reactor, we found that the word reactor is not a super great word because reactors react and there's something mysterious about that. I've talked about critical before, a lot of the terminology, the imagery and the way it's portrayed hasn't been very human, hasn't been very approachable, hasn't been very... Um, benefits oriented. And so I think our feeling was, well, we could use more marketing. 
uh, we could use more customer driven. What does good marketing do? It talks about the benefits to you and your community and in customer driven language. Did you test what imagery would work better than a cooling tower? We well, we had some fun with this. We did we we did the kind of experiment I used to do when I was in the corporate sector, where you you're trying to get how do I describe this? It's an experiment where I will I will create a series of names and then a series of logos or images, and then I'll swap those uh, out, and then I'll ask you the same question, but I'll show you a different name for the category and a different logo for the category, and then I will derive. Uh, subconsciously the impact of that name or that logo on your favorability for the category. So we, we made up eight names. Different things you could call nuclear. You could call it elemental energy or, we, or clean fission or power scale. And then we, had, we put small modular reactors in there. So we, we put a whole series of names for the category in. And then I had my, uh, one of my designers design a whole bunch of different symbols for nuclear. One was the atom, one was the cooling tower. And then we made a whole bunch of modern things that could evoke newer and more human and, you know, a set of different brand attributes. We basically created a thing called a utility curve for eight different names and eight different identities. And what we found was everything we did was better than the cooling tower. <laughs> so, and in fact, everything we did was better than small modular reactor. If you've got wind, you've got a windmill. And if you've got solar, you've got a solar panel. And it's not like an obvious image. And so people pull from the pull from the obvious one, which is, you know, put that in there. But it was, it, it really depressed favorability. And not surprisingly, it and the word reactor, because they, it feels big and scary and could do something that you're not expecting and feels like a polluting thing. And so it's, it's re like all the things that did really well are superhuman. And it, we'll, we'll talk about how to get to the report so people who are listening can, can go look at the different, you know, what logos do the best <laughs> for the category. But, you know, approachable, benefit-oriented, you know, that have attributes that, that aren't big and scary did, did way better. Interestingly, because uh, my original conceit of this thing was, oh, the word nuclear is a problem. I'll just come in as a, as a marketing expert and try and think about what should we call it? And so we, as, I, as I said, we created a whole bunch of different, different terms. But nuclear actually tested very well. In fact, the leading way to describe nuclear was, was new nuclear. And then the, the idea of clean fission did pretty well. The, what the industries used for, the, for next technology reactors, like small modular reactors, did very poorly. It just feels techy and not very approachable. And then I thought a lot about it, and I thought, well, my career in marketing, how many, in marketing, how many times have I relaunched a product and called it new? Right? And it always works. Well, it didn't work for new Coke. And there are a bunch of technology advancements that have happened in the nuclear category, but they have been under position. What does America experience? They experience innovations that make a product new and improved. So when you talk about the category as new nuclear, you actually get people's attention, and, and it has a lot of appeal, as it turns out. I didn't expect that. That's really interesting. I, I love the idea of just adding new. That's so, it's so elementary in a way, but if it works, it works. Would you tell us a bit more about the top takeaways from the report? Yeah, I'll give you three that I thought were really interesting. One I've touched on. Takeaway number one is there is there's a really significant amount of support across these eight countries in every country in the world, the, the number of supporters for new nuclear outnumbers the number of opponents pretty significantly. On average, it's four to one or five to one. It's 10 to one in Poland. But even in countries where you would think you, where one perceives there to be a fair amount of opposition, like the Germanys and Japans, it's actually two to one in those countries. So, so conclusion number one is there are way more supporters than opponents out there. That's not how it feels in the popular media. The second one is... 
It's the one thing you can talk about at the Thanksgiving, uh, at your Thanksgiving dinner, <laughs> because regardless of your political party, there's support on the other side. So this is true in the U.S. There's over 50% support, whether you identify as a Democrat or Republican, but it's true throughout the world. We looked at 38 political parties, and we have a large, large sample for, for people who vote as a member of those parties. In 32 of 38 political parties in these eight countries, you have more than 50% of voters who support advanced nuclear. Now, their reasons are different, but it's one of the few non-political issues of our time. Yeah, I think the world's changed with the energy crisis, with the energy prices, with the climate, the set of climate commitments that are hard to meet, and then with, um, with what's happening with technology, that we've now had a confluence of alignment across political parties. So that's a relief because we're working on climate change, and it is a place that people agree. The third one, which is, I think, the biggest and the biggest surprise to me, is that environmentalists are more supportive of new nuclear than non-environmentalists by a significant margin in the U.S. And the support across the globe for nuclear is very strong among environmentalists. There, there's a perception, I think, in culture that, oh, it's, a, it's an anti-environmental thing, but that's not the case. I'll give you the piece of data here, okay? So in the U.S., you have 30, 65% of people who are members of environmental groups that's like Nature Conservancy or Greenpeace or WWF. 65% are supportive of the latest nuclear technologies and 60% of non-members are supportive. So it's high on both, but it's actually something that environmentalists really want. And that's not something that, that, that people perceive. And I think there's a set of environmentalists who remain vehemently opposed to it, but that is a small portion of the global population. It's a small and loud portion of the global population. I want to dive a little deeper into that. I know the report said in some countries, not only do advanced nuclear supporters outnumber opponents among environmental group members, but the level of support for advanced nuclear is higher among environmental group members than in the population at large. Tell us a little bit more about that. Were you surprised to see that? I was surprised to see it. I think things have changed over the last 10 years. Younger people want us to take do the things that we need to do. Uh, to solve the climate crisis. And so that's a big motivator, and that's changed over the last decade. And many of the, the, the anti-nuke sentiment is, is aging, and it's not necessarily <laughs> rejuvenated. And so I think there's been a cultural and a generational shift. Did you get into how many people or what percentage are on the fence about supporting nuclear? If you give people a choice of, you know, you're either supportive or you're on the fence, or you're opposed, you've got about 15 to 25%, depending on what country are kind of on the fence. Um, here's the thing that we did though. We said, well, let's ask you to get off the fence. And so it's like, we're gonna give you a yes or no question. Um, yes or no, are you supportive of, of new nuclear? And then we asked also about in people's communities, cause that's like a slightly higher bar, like down the road as opposed to conceptually. And we, across the sample size, we saw, when we asked people to get off the fence, from 65% to 92%, depending on the country, said support. Okay, so you've got 92% when you force people off the fence in Poland were supportive. And in the U.S., when you ask people to get off the fence, you're looking at almost 80%. We did a, a, the type of segmentation I did with the corporate brands where we, like, grouped people. You know, like, your people in your group are the same, and people outside of their group are different. And we came up with these four different segments. There's one particular segment which exists in all eight of these countries, um, which we call the determined skeptics. 
who are vehemently opposed to nuclear, and nothing I tried with message testing would move them at all. All the other 85% were like, okay, that's interesting. And they moved up by 6, 8, 10% in terms of their support after they received a message. But the 15% were completely immovable. And in fact, everyone else on an argument on safety and waste, everyone, everyone else, the 85% that said, oh, that's valuable to know. And they became more supportive. But the 15% were singularly immovable and they made up almost all the opposition to nuclear. So they, they are older. They're actually quite concentrated in, in certain pockets. And I mean, we need to be respectful of all the, of all the different viewpoints that people have, but it is, it's a little bit of a vestige from a time gone by before we had the awakening about the climate crisis. And it's, it's a decently small number of people where all the opposition is concentrated. That's also true for clean energy overall, by the way. There's a segment of 13% of America that's like really opposed to clean energy and they, all the opposition sits with that group and everyone else is, is embraces it. So I think it's just important to think about the fact that you do have a you know, 80% plus people who are either highly supportive or movable on the issue. You mentioned the demographics, and I wanted to ask you about that. What does the demographic split look like among supporters? Is it, is it even? Is one generation more favorable? On the demographics, it's reasonably even across age and income. The, the strongest opposition is definitely older, particularly in Germany and Japan. But other than that strong opposition, support is, is reasonably uniform across ages. Men are more supportive than women. Women, they're not more opposed. They're more gathering information. By the way, I found this with all the testing that I've done, is that men have already made up their minds on things. And I've statistically proven that men are stubborn and maybe foolish with all my work. But oh, I was quoted in The New Yorker saying men are useless with respect to climate change. But we've never done a test where women don't, don't uh, absorb the information and move more than men, uh, not once. So on nuclear, the interesting thing is that women aren't more opposed, they're just more on the fence. And they actually move more when, um, when they're exposed to different messages. Whereas men kind of made up their mind on, on things. So men, you know, men are, are you know, a few percentage points more supportive uh, than women. What messages get people off the fence? That's a good question, and it depends what segment you're in. There's a pretty large segment of the population that we call concerned professionals um, who tend to be you know, concerned about climate, concerned about energy, tend to be a little higher income, who, you know, quite movable from this as a critical solution to stopping climate change. Uh, there's also a pretty large segment of the population, we call them pro-growth established, tend to be a little bit more conservative, who are very much moved by, you know, we need the power to make our own energy independently. Of all the messages that we tested, the leading message was an energy independence message. Had a lot of lift. We do these tests all the time. But as I said, we've done a few hundred. On average, if you see a message, you don't see a message, you get three or four or 5% lift. Then the energy independence message for nuclear had an eight point lift. So that's a, like twice as, more, twice as productive as your average clean energy message. And that, I think people were particularly resonated with the fact that dependence on foreign sources of energy exposed us to potentially high costs and unreliable energy sources. And so that's, that, that was the number one message across the board. The climate message works for some, but not necessarily for all. We talk a lot about engaging youth and changing their perception. I feel like I don't hear as much about changing the mind of older population. And you said that they're people that are 
more set in their ways, you know, how do, how do you address them? How do you get the benefits of nuclear across effectively to that age group? It's not dramatically different by age cohort. A few points less support as you get older, but I wouldn't say it's, you know, it's stuck in the single digits. There's a perception that there's this throng of young people who are like 20 points more supportive of the stuff and there's a bunch of old people. It doesn't turn out to be the case. It turns out that it's like a few percentage points here and there. I think, I don't know that age is the primary variable. I think what we found, different messages work for different segments. What we found is the message for what we call the concerned professionals is different than another group that we call the hardworking pragmatists. The hardworking pragmatists tend to be more labor-oriented. They want prosperity in their community. Many, If you're in an energy town, they want their energy town to thrive. They want a thriving tax base. And so the economic message works well for the hardworking pragmatists. And then there are concerned professionals who are you know, more climate and environmentally oriented. Mary and I obviously were, were communicators in the nuclear industry. Are the greatest challenges you think nuclear communicators face based on the research that you did? You gave us the takeaways. I'm curious what you think our biggest challenges are going to be and what what are the best next steps? The nuclear industry's single biggest challenge is that the nuclear industry is too cautious about its communications. That is my conclusion from this, because when I give someone a message, I move them significantly, and I've done a lot of this stuff. And so I think... The context has changed over the last decade. We've had both energy crisis and climate crisis and also technological advancements. And the degree of understanding about nuclear's role as a technology in the mix is low. And so I think the biggest challenge is is doing more (laughs) rather than doing less. And then I think the next one is humanizing it. Like any good marketing, talk about the benefits in terms of uh, in terms of the economic benefits and the clean energy benefits and the climate benefits and leaning really hard into those. So I know you work for big brands. What are some lessons, tips, tricks the nuclear industry can take from, you know, marketing that Coke did or some of the other big mainstream brands that you've worked for? I mean, I always talk about simplicity and humanity with respect to climate and clean energy, but also just in general. You know, and so the best brands in the world have one idea, right? So you said Coke, I'd say refreshment, right? And so they... You say Nike, I'll say like authentic athletic achievement. And so the best brands have much more of a singular idea. And I think that's a, I've thought a lot about this with respect to nuclear. I think if I had to pick one word, probably would just go with clean. Just go with clean. Because it moves it a lot. Uh, Maybe not for all segments, but it's, it's a big misunderstanding. Nuclear is like on the fence between one of the clean industries or one of the dirty industries. And so uh, simplicity and owning a word and repetition, 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 repetition is 90% of the game in marketing. And so um, I think we there's so much complexity to this product, tech, massive, techno, wonderful technological breakthrough. We're able to harness the power of the atom to, to like power human prosperity. Uh, we get lost in all the different aspects of that. And, and technocratic. And the, you know, the old adage in marketing is when you're explaining, you're losing. There's a lot of explaining going on uh, in nuclear communications. If our listeners want to look at the report themselves, where can they find it? It's on the website of our four partner organizations. So that's uh, Clear Path, Third Way, Replanet, and us. And just Google, the world wants new nuclear. And those 
four websites will pop up and you can go grab that, grab the report. You just mentioned one word, clean. Uh, we've been asking all of our guests in one word, describe the future of nuclear energy. That is a great question. I think for my, I will give you, I'll give you a today answer, which I've already mentioned, which is under communicated. And I think I'll give you a tomorrow answer. I'll go with foundational. That's a really good word to use. And I guess since you have done all this research, we'll go a little bit further with this question we've been asking everyone. Does your research tell you what's the best word to use to describe the future of nuclear energy? I mentioned the word clean before. I have two that I think, and they were super simple. One is clean and the other is new, which I mentioned before, uh, because there's been a lot of technology breakthroughs on the modularity side, on the safety side, on the waste side, on the, um, on the fuel side. And I think, what are we trying to do if we're communicators? We're trying to, we're trying to ask for reconsideration, right? We're trying to, we're trying to say, look at this product. Uh, new is a word that gets people to realize that this actually, there's actually work going on and innovation going on and ingenuity going on that makes this part of the future energy solution. And you're not going to be part of the future if you're not part of an innovation program. And so I think new and clean are two really good words. The simplicity of those are amazing. And this whole conversation has reminded me that sometimes we overthink things and that sometimes it is the simplest answer is the best answer and the best way to approach approach something. Clean and new. <laughs> Thank you so much to John Marshall for having this conversation with us today. Always wonderful to talk to him. If you are interested in viewing the report, you can check the show notes and we have it linked there. You can also find out more about Potential Energy Coalition on their website, potentialenergycoalition.org. Thanks everyone for listening. Rate and review the podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It really helps us out. See you next time.